everybody, welcome to Literary Disco on Lit Hub Radio, episode 179, Watership Down. You might remember the 1978 cartoon film adaptation, or Dude, maybe our the... listeners are not <laughs> are not 50 years old like us. Oh, or let like me finish. Let me finish. All right, I'm sorry. Or maybe the 1999 <laughs> Canadian TV series, or the 2018 British miniseries, or maybe the play. Or even the role-playing game. Or maybe you've actually read the original novel, Watership Down, written by Richard Adams and published in 1972. Today, we will discuss this epic book that's centered on a small group of rabbits that leave their home and roam all of a few acres to find a new Warren. <laughs> this Christ. is Literary Disco, the last book club you'll ever need. We're Todd, Julia, and Ryder, three old friends who love to read, debate, and sometimes even agree, but probably not today. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me, as always, are novelist and critic Todd Goldberg and essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel. Hi, guys. Hi. Hey. All right, right out of the gate with a bad fucking energy, Todd. Hey, it's, look, uh, before, <laughs> before we even start with my bad fucking energy... <laughs> Can I tell you guys about a great piece of hate mail we received in no. my interaction with this person? No, Please. this is sad. First of all, I just want to know, I always see this. I can see what you see, and I just say no over and over to myself. But go ahead. <laughs> so, a lovely woman named Amy. <laughs> on, like, a Friday night, uh, sends in some hate mail. And it reads the following. <laughs> Just summarize it. Oh, no, I'm going to read it. I have to read it. I owe her this. She says, Okay, so now I am having the same problem as one of you. One of my dear friends, an author, says you are the best literary pod out there. Having just read Middlemarch, which was incredible, she said I should try you. Only to find one of you is... And folks, let's be clear. It's you. It's me. (laughs) One of you is... Okay, not an idiot, probably, but talking <laughs> idiotically about a book, he cannot get past page 60 without the cliff notes. <laughs> this is true. Well, I could not get myself past that part of your discussion. I don't know how you think your audience is supposed to respond to that. I don't need to listen to that. I can hear it from dozens of folks or my kids. So, so far... I will stick to my friend's verbal cliff notes about you guys, as you do not seem for real to me. That's so interesting how the... Hold on. Yes, I'm ready to break this down, but there's more, because, again, I've seen it all. Middle March is not a tough book for a real reader. And no, the narrator's voice could not be done away with or condensed. It would be anything but the beloved book it is without that. To which I responded, (laughs) now, admittedly, this is probably the wrong response. Yeah. I usually don't I, respond I, I, to hate mail. I don't even need to know the response, and I can tell you it's probably the wrong response. I don't usually respond to hate mail. I usually just delete it. Yeah, that, that's not true. You, res- you I, love responding to hate mail. I responded with two simple words that have never made anyone happy. Those two simple words are, feel better? Oh, God, Todd. <laughs> Terrible response. Uh, Amy said... And you are snarky at feedback, too? Wow. Okay. I did not mean to be mean. It was disturbing, disappointing is all. If I earned this response for you, I am sorry. It was just upsetting. I love the book. Okay, well, I guess you showed me. To which I responded, I loved it, too. But you'll have to listen to the end to get there. 
And she said, sorry, I wrote you a sincere reply. I am not okay with your response. We are sitting here in the middle of fires and virus, and I was honest. That was a mean reply. That's you. And you I, said that. Let's no. be clear. No, that was no, her response She called me. him out for his feel better being yeah. a mean reply, which yeah. it is. And I You should said, have just told her to wait the first time. I said, I sincerely hope you felt better. It's literally why we do a show where we argue about books. And then I signed it. The idiot. <laughs> oh, Todd. Todd, okay. And then she blocked me. Yeah. Well, yeah, fair enough. So. This is this is in line with you fighting Nazis on Twitter. It doesn't do any good. It only makes you feel slightly better for a second, and then actually makes you feel worse in the long run. It's not like because her letter. I yeah. I, I, I the the part that I'm interested in is you know that it, it's very similar to that. Um, that article that was written about yes, our podcast. I, it's funny how that first episode on middle, like it seems like middle March more than any other book really is um, important to people yes. to defend, like to, you know, it, it, and, and I, I wonder how many people go right to that episode as mm-hmm. their first listening, you know, cause to me, what's what, like what the irony there is that I feel like when I, I don't do it anymore, but when I the last read the iTunes reviews of our show, right. which was probably two years ago or something, it was mostly attacking us for being incredibly pretentious. <laughs> and I felt like, oh. To be clear, I, attacking writer. Attacking me. Well, yeah, sure. But, you know, <laughs> I, I walked you. away from, I, I walked away being like, wow, I need to stop reading these reviews. And if anything, tone down the assumption that, um, you know, like just try and be more open and sound less snobby in in our review of books. But like then you have Middlemarch, which sort of worked in the opposite way, where I feel like we downplayed its its importance and wanted to approach it as neutrally as possible. And and that book is really not the book to do that. People don't want a, a, an off the cuff uh, criticism or a relaxed approach. <laughs> I'm, they I'm want it to be taken they seriously. Want. They don't want Todd Goldberg. <laughs> so okay, all right. <laughs> Let's, uh, it's hard because, I mean, we're all Amy in a way. Okay, so here is, here is, there's two words in that whole exchange that I feel are worth discussing and they're not feel better. (laughs) (laughs) They are real reader. Um, Like that's at the core of her complaint and that is what we're trying to reject and get around with this entire podcast project that we've been doing for X number of years um, (laughs) is that there is no such thing as a real reader. That Todd's stupid bullshit response is sadly a common stupid bullshit response. And that we need to... I would say the majority. Yeah, and we need to accept it. But I do think, Ryder, I bet you're right. Okay, so there's not a lot of people who have read Middle March, all told, right? So no, I, think, I think there's a lot of people that have. Okay, obviously. all right, hang on. Maybe there's not a lot of people who both have read Middlemarch and are trolling around on pop podcasts, okay? So that right. is a small Venn diagram. And then when they right. see that episode, they get excited because it's like for them and they just want to be validated in how much they love this book. And then here you come, just <laughs> destroy that love. Um But I think anyone who loves books, I'm not going to say real reader, but like if you are curious about reading and care about either end of this exchange, you should give both sides a chance. You should give the pretentious side a chance and you should try to basically convert people like Todd to your way of thinking. 
And I love the book. You were converted. That's what's sad. I was converted. But, uh, I mean, the, the, the thing that I, I find um, actually heartening for the human condition is a person listens to 33 minutes of our podcast about a book that they love. They get so angry. They're like, motherfucker, I'm going to tell you that I'm no longer listening to you, having never listened to you before. Yeah. I, I love that passion. That fucking passion is great. Well, I love that article that actually went full circle and sort of followed through. But, you know, because by episode two of Middlemarch, yeah, I feel like we all came around. And by the end, I mean, you know, we were uh, we were brought to tears by the incredible yes. book. Mm-hmm. So, um, I don't know. It goes along with like there's also there was also this phenomenon a couple weeks ago on Twitter that I started following and wanted to respond to, which was like. And it's it, I think things like this pop up every once in a while, but it was like warning signs if you see these books on a guy's shelf. Do mm. you guys see this? And it was like mm. a list of the books to you know stop dating a guy. And if, did you slowly turn around to your own <laughs> and my own bookshelf? <laughs> well, no, it was a, it was a really predictable list of books, right? It was Lolita. It was Bukowski, um, David Foster Wallace. David Foster, yeah, it was like the classic sort of dude bro, which we've talked about on this, you know, the college dude bro, which is really kind of outdated at this point. Like, I, I'd be surprised if any real readers is that limited in their sort of book collection if they oh. have a bookshelf. But maybe, maybe. Uh, You've I never, I, you're too far away from your MFA experience, I assure right. you. <laughs> well, one of the best responses I saw to, you know, the thread that I was reading or all that, it was, was the person who was just like, actually, you know, the best response, the... The biggest warning sign is when there's no bookshelf. Yeah. And it was like, well, right. Like, let's be, to be clear, like, you know, if anybody is using books, I mean, the problem, the biggest problem with those books beyond like even their, their content, because like Lolita, uh, does that really deserve to be up there? I don't know. Like, but the, the, the idea is that, that, that these men are using books as props uh, like as sort of displays of their personality or just, you know, like I'm an accomplished thinker and these are the great books I've read that sort of prove that. And, um, and when it's that predictable, when it's the same five books that every guy has read, it shows, it, it illustrates a pretty limited worldview, you know? Yeah. So that alone I can see, but like picking the specific books to judge somebody by, I'm really bothered by. Like I, you know, I, I feel like, like you're saying, Julia, such a huge project of this podcast has always been to be as omnivorous as possible in our mm-hmm. book and, and and to be as open-minded as possible because I, of course, like everybody who has been reading and cares about literature, like I have opinions, I have taste. And so it's, it's, it's been such an important personal project for, of me, of mine to not judge people based on what books they read, like mm-hmm. to listen to them about mm-hmm. their books and, and to engage them. And if anything, inspire more reading you know because the worst thing to me is when people get locked into one one type of book or one genre or you know one thing and they can't see outside of that and they can't accept people that read other types of literature other you know and uh i would hate to think that our show does anything to shut people out from that from you know wanting to open up more we're gonna talk about a book about a we're gonna lose a lot of friends today about a (laughs) christ-like bunny I, but I think that I, I totally agree with you, Ryder, and it is weird that Todd reading this hate mail, which I completely object to, which, let's also note, was not mail or even an email. It was a message, and we all are, like, shooting around angry mess- Facebook messages yes. and comments. Yeah, this came, this came through our Facebook page. Very 
you know, very ill-advised. We should all stop doing that as a species. But uh, <laughs> please send me post mail. <laughs> I think what we need to do is, as a culture, is stop using a few books to identify identify our whole heart and our whole yeah. like value system. And that's it. Feels crazy to say that because I think. As recently as 10 years ago, I would have been like, well, these are my top 10 favorite books. And I just don't do that anymore because I don't want to do that. I I want to be able to read things like that crazy short story about a boy dating a Barbie and be like, oh, yeah, "Yeah, that's something I read. (laughs) Um, And engage with it without feeling like this is who I am, you know? You know, it's a funny thing. I um, I've started to do like early press for my um, for my new book. Like, you know, you basically start six months before your book comes out, and so a magazine is doing an interview with me, and one of the questions is, is like, list your five most influential books that you've ever read, and I'm like, oh, that's so hard. I, I like, I could say the five books that you know impressed me when I was 16 because mm-hmm. you know that's sort of like where you Pride lock age. in at your favorite thing, right? Yeah, but you know, in the last 20 years or whatever, I've probably read a thousand books or something, right? Um, and I couldn't easily pick my favorite, most influential book because I've read so many of them. And, you know, the the act of reading is different today. And we've talked about this on the show. The act of reading a book today and discovering something amazing is different than the act of reading a book when you're 15 and discovering something amazing because it's not the first time you've seen whatever that amazing thing is. Um, and you understand how the how the bread is made also. So there's that bit. Um, and so I, I decided, you know, I'm not going to say like what the five most influential books of my life were. I'm just going to talk about like the five books I've thought about a lot in the last mm. two years or whatever, you know. Um, and that's I think that's partly a function of us doing this show is now when I'm reading a book, for pleasure, which is more like what the show does is um, I read. It's not like when I'm reviewing a book for the LA Times or something where I'm really reviewing critic, really reading critically and making notes all the time and having a personal response. You know, the role of the critic is different than the role of the critic on literary disco um, is, you know, allowing these things to absorb into me in a different way. So I was thinking about like that book, Gabriel by Edward Hirsch, that that book of poetry. Amazing book. Um, and I think like that's the one book over the course of like the last eight years we've been doing the show that I think about as though the person in that book who died, Gabriel, was someone that I knew. Hmm. And I think that is the mark of what great writing has done. But it's the same way I felt at the end of reading Middlemarch. Yeah. Like what you were talking about, Julia, like that longing for these people that you spent so much time with. Um, it's actually the opposite of the way I feel about um, every single character in Watership Down. Okay, so I know we're going to get to that in one second. But I guess I just want to put a little ending on this conversation by saying, like, if there are people out there who feel the way that Amy felt about Middlemarch or any other book, I think, you know, think about how that book has become a personal part of your identity. And first of all, a random person on a podcast not liking a book doesn't mean they don't like you and that you aren't valuable. And I'm dead serious here. Like, that's how people feel when their favorite thing is attacked. That's true. But also, read more books. Put more put more things in your color wheel, and then 
if half of them turn out to be stupid or we have to cancel culture three quarters of them, you'll have other things <laughs> <laughs> to fall back on. Hey, going, going back to Lolita for just one second, did you guys see that Nabokov was was RBG's literature professor? Yeah, I uh, did see that. How awesome is that? Wow. How amazing is that? Yeah. Like when you isn't it cool sometimes when you sort of see those little tendrils of of history. I mean that's also how conspiracy theories are started. Like, <laughs> yeah. well, Nabokov, right? Who was that's a why pedophile? She was okay, with <laughs> okay, yeah. And stop, Clinton. Stop. Don't stop. even support against her. Don't feed it. <laughs> like, oh shit. All right. So let's get into Watership Down. Um, okay. No yeah. more totting on. There is. <laughs> God. <laughs> So, uh, Watership Down, uh, published in 1972, has been adapted, like I said, a million different times in a million different ways. It is considered a classic of children's literature, even though it is closing in on 500 pages. It really does follow a group of rabbits. Um, I think, you know, there's not much to it plot-wise other than a group of rabbits. have a, One of them has a psychic vision. Uh, Fiverr, he's a small rabbit. Not, not much to it other than the rabbit has a psychic vision. Right. There's a now lot the to unpack here. To Let's over. that sentence. Yeah. Well, okay. I, I think there are two there are two two major points that we're going to keep coming back to that we should just lay out there for for people who don't know the book, and then say we're probably going to be spoiling this book. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. But I would highly recommend reading it to anybody. Uh, so. So I'm just going to say that right now. But the two major points about this book that are that are sort of weird and make it different is, one... Uh, Should be good. It is biologically 100% accurate and possible, which is different than other books that follow animals as characters. Mm-hmm. So in other words, besides the fact that they talk, <laughs> everything within this book is accurate to the behavior of rabbits and what they can and can't do in the world, uh, physically possible. And... And then, and, and also their behaviors as far as how they treat one another. And, um, and then the second major weird thing is they have culture. They have government. religions, government, yeah. they have tribes, they have separate belief systems and ways of things. So that's, those are the two sort of like... Myths, they have myths. Yeah, myths. Mm-hmm. And, and, and this book sort of leans on those two points very heavily and and they seem kind of at odds with one another at times which we can get into but that's the major project of this book that i think makes it special and different than other children's books that follow a group of animals and very different from you know we can get into this like the disney movies that we're all used to with talking animals though you know the the the, the animal accuracy but the biological accuracy mixed with this real, real in-depth invest investment in in creating a culture of rabbits with their own language, their own religion, their own rituals, their own ways of thinking. All that um, British fantasy good shit you're here for. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it opens with the map, mm-hmm. uh, and and it's it's very, very reminiscent of Tolkien. Yeah, which we can get into later. But I, I was, yeah. So who wants to go? Who wants to uh, go first? Todd, you want to start with some bad fucking energy? Yeah. Well, uh, well, clearly my dog Rube Goldberg has some, has some opinions there in the background. Um, look, I think it's clear my, my biases uh, as it relates to talking fucking animals. Hmm. <laughs> yep. So, well, let, let me give the praise out first. Clearly. If you're 11 years old, 
this would be the thing that rules your life for an entire summer. Mm-hmm. You would read this and it would be great. I, I do remember vividly the 1978 cartoon because it scared the holy <laughs> shit out yeah, of me. Me too. I me mean, too. like viscerally. Yes. To the point that now where I live, so I live, um, my house abuts a golf course. In case you guys are curious about um, how I've descended into middle-aged Judum. So my house abuts a golf course. And for a long time, the golf course was overrun with rabbits. Like, there were thousands of rabbits. And I would go out there and I'd be like, it's a warren. There's a warren in our backyard. And I'd be like, you know, that's... You know, Fiverr is going to come out here because I remember the cartoon so well. And also, I would see the, the the bunnies fucking attacking each other. Like, those motherfuckers are vicious. Yeah. Um, and then they would get into our yard and start to eat our yard. And then periodically, um, my adorable Cocker Spaniels would, um, would, well, would, would murder them. And then, then that's in here. Even, that's in this book. Yeah, it became even more real. So... You know, uh, remembering the cartoon and remembering what it is to be 11, I imagine that an 11-year-old would absolutely love this. Um, as a adult, 49-year-old man, reading a 500-page book about talking bunnies in a police state <laughs> and a fucking bird who sounds like Jar Jar Binks, <laughs> yep. I had a hard time getting through it. I'm not going to lie. I had a hard time getting through it. It never won you over? Like it never no. got, it never reached a point where the indulgence kind of became the point and became. Were you its own. ever invested in big wigs, you know, <laughs> no. big fights? No. It, and the only character that I was slightly invested in was Fiverr because I do like a paranormal teen. <laughs> so. Oh my God. You, you throw in a Christ like. <laughs> bunny figure and i'm interested in in how that works in a larger group dynamic so julia um, had you read this before was i had so i think we've lost track of this because we've been working on this for so long but i suggested we read this because a few months ago i was i think it was early summer i was like craving that deep summertime read um oh, right, right. and i had read this when i was Probably a teenager, um, a young and horse I girl. loved it. Yeah, <laughs> that was beyond Julia at, Roth. past her, was pa- past horse girl, past, past horse girl time. Um, yeah, if you guys want some horse girl prime horse girl age books, I can provide. We should do that. Uh, <laughs> we should just do the all horse girl episode. Anyway, Literary on. Disco twenty twenty one, the horse books. The horse. Oh, I've I already have like ten ideas. Um, anyway, uh, okay, so I. I suggested this. I wanted to reread it. I plowed in, excited to go. And as I was reading, I mean, here's what kept happening. I was like into the story, but then I kept just imagining, zooming out and imagining this all just being like little bunnies hopping on a lawn. (laughs) Yeah. And I just thought that was the funniest fucking thing in the world. And it was, uh, here's how I feel about this book. 
You know how in every cheesy, like, 80s, 90s movie about children believing in magic and they're like, adults just can't believe in magic anymore. They're incapable of it. They're too worn down by life. I was like, I'm the adult now. (laughs) Like, I can't get get all the way in, you know? Like, I can't feel Peter Pan knocking on the window um, in the same way. Um, But I remember it. But that's a different thing than... I mean, I feel like when I read this, I was like, there are different kinds of government. Whoa, that's so deep. (laughs) Because that's pretty much what it is. They hop around to a cult and then, like, completely domesticated rabbits and then violent rabbits. End up so at the police the state one, authoritarian. Yeah. yeah. The one time I actually did get into it was when they do get into the cult. Yeah. Because cult is I good. had for, I had forgotten that part. Like that. And oh, it's they are creepy. It's yeah, so it's creepy as hell. Like they're basically doing the lottery for the for the farmer. Yeah. Um, and like that one, I was like, oh, I don't remember this from the ninety minute cartoon of my youth that they were in a fucking Jim Jones cult with a bunch of sleek haired pretty rabbits. It's there, man. I just. Rewatched the cartoon right before we recorded because we ended up mm-hmm. uh, with a scheduling mishap. We had an extra hour, so I went through the cartoon again. It's pretty great. The, uh, <laughs> the cowslip is like this floppy-eared, floppy-handed <laughs> little English proper, and they're all and it's just like gazing out into. It's so good. It's it's really a good adaptation. Anyway, go on. So is it is it sort of like Rosemary's Baby at the beginning with cowslip in the cartoon? Yeah, it's, like, it's oh, so it's creepy. Aristocrats doing yes. aristocrat things. Yes. It's it's, and, oh. and, and, and it's really well structured. The, the main rabbits are like in the middle eating the free carrots. And then it's just the camera is panning around behind where the other rabbits are like listening to them in like paranoid. Like, yeah, it's so good. It's, it's a, the, that, that cartoon adaptation is actually, I think, as good as the book as far so as. That, um, yeah. <coughs> that, that part was, I really liked that part. Very suspenseful. When it, yeah, when it gets yeah. to the authoritarian government, I was like, oh, I know how this goes. <laughs> So, okay, we let's deep dive into this anthropomorphization um, yeah. because, and this is the tension that Ryder was talking about at the beginning. It is so fucking weird <laughs> because, yeah. and here's why. Here's, here's, here's what illustrates the point. So, like, I appreciate the commitment to biology and probably prefer that half of it, but the central tension of this book is not these mean rabbits. The central tension is... Gotta get some ladies. Yeah, some women. Yeah, we gotta get some some girls. Which we forgot about when we left our war. Yeah. Like, Like, I can't believe that it's like 250 pages into the novel before the, like, six dudes who ran away go, oh, maybe we should have brought does with us. like, what? See, it's my view that he was 250 pages into the book and he was like, well, I don't, I don't really have anything else. Yeah. And he's like, oh shit! All even the even Hazel's a dude. <laughs> we gotta, yeah. we gotta get some women in here. Yeah, yeah. The the uh, the the point at which everyone's like, yeah, bro, we gotta <laughs> we gotta go to the mall. <laughs> Like, steal us some women. It's, uh, that gets a little creepy. Because, oh, it's super creepy. And the reason it's creepy is because it's trying almost in a like animal farm kind of way. Animal farm is a good book to bring into this discussion. Mm-hmm. To be an allegory for all these different things. But if then you have to throw out this huge segment of like human life and human experience just to make it rabbit accurate, then how do you... <laughs> 
Like, this is so strange that we would be like, yes, go for it. Find freedom. Build your own society by going around to other societies and stealing their people. Like, this is very, very strange. Very colonialist. Weird. I really don't think it's an allegory the same. I don't think I, I don't think the comparison to Animal Farm is apt because Animal Farm Animal Farm is clearly an allegory in the in the strict sense of the word. It's 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 going theme first, right? It's going right, it's going right. uh, idea and theme and then I will use animals and talking animals to sort of tell that theme. I don't think and Adams has, has explicitly said he does not consider it an allegory. Yes, yes. So I think that a better parallel is is Tolkien and mm-hmm. Lord of the Rings, which again completely absent of female characters. They had right. to add females into the movie adaptations because there are none in the books. And that's like three or you know four, if you count The Hobbit, giant novels about a group of men. You know, it's the, the word is the homosocial uh, sort of fantasy world where they are on this mission and all they, all the, and, and so I was reminded again of that reading Watership Down, and it's pretty remarkable. And even more remarkable is the fact that he was telling this story to his daughters. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the that's the conceit. Do we believe that that's true? Yes, I believe well, that's I think, true. I believe that that's what he was inspired by. Yeah. And But, you know, it's the same way that Tolkien was inspired by writing Lord of the Rings to his son while his son was at war. I think that that, yeah, maybe that's overplayed as a sort of, you know, origin story. But, I mean, being a parent, like, I have definitely been inspired by the by the act of talking to my kid and telling him stories and it's, right. it's, it's fed my creativity. So I can see that. But I guess what's interesting to me is that like, if he has daughters and he's trying to create a great book to entertain them, the fact that he wouldn't consider female rabbits and, and they never rise to, to, I mean, like at the one point where, where I was like, Oh, well this book is fucking ridiculous is when the one doe just gets murdered in front of everybody. And they literally say like, well, what's one more or less doe? Right. It's one doe more or less. And then they just move on. You're like, wait a minute. When any of the male characters die, which I like that there's death in this book and I find it awesome, like that, that brutality of yeah. nature. But like, can we at least recognize that women are, are not? Yeah, no, I mean. No, it's because just, it's going it's for hardcore science. But yeah. the, it doesn't surprise me because this is, uh, that's the patriarchy, man. Like we all... Yeah get into the habit, Greg and I were just talking about this the other day, of seeing, like, you see a squirrel running through your yard, okay? And you're like, oh, there he goes. There he goes up the tree. Um, Mm -hmm. And everybody does this. I mean, I'm sure I'm sure that's an exaggeration but it you do have to do this sort of mental override to not automatically label every little guy bug like think now notice when you do it um and if well, it my, did my start, grandmother had a hysterical habit with, with our dog growing up it, it was female whenever my grandmother was happy with the dog it was oh good girl and whenever she was angry she was like bad boy <laughs> so the dog would shift genders based on if my grandmother that's liked it amazing that, it was that's, incredible that is amazing yeah and, and for years we noticed it once we point once my my dad pointed it out we would just laugh every time she was like well he was over here running around in my garden and you're like oh my god All right, go on Sorry. um no that's incredible and my point too but yeah. you know we see the animals we often see running around making trouble are the male animals, too, to Todd's point. He's seeing them tear up the golf course. Um, and it makes total sense to me that that would happen. And another book, 
uh, that I couldn't stop thinking about reading this was Lord of the Flies. Like there is yeah, this Yeah, I thought of Lord of the Flies a bunch. Yeah, I mean it has I, the weird psychic kid, it has the reluctant leader, <laughs> you know, all that all that Christian stuff. <laughs> Well, I don't know. If, is being psychic Christian? Isn't that being a heretic? Unless you are, in fact, Christ. I'm less into the psychic, creepy ones um, than the reluctant, you know, um, what's his name in uh, in Lord of the Fri- Flies? What's the well, main kid? It doesn't matter. Uh, not Piggy, the other one. Ralph? The main kid. Ralph. Yeah. Ralph. yeah. Ralph and Hazel here. Like, those are the Christ figures. Those are the... yeah. Well, I think I, let, let's. I, I think the 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 main point is that this is an epic in the really traditional sense, totally. which is the founding right. of a new culture, right. and you know that's what Odysseus does. That's what, or not so much Odysseus as um, certainly uh, uh, the Iliad is about founding a new culture, and uh, the um, uh, what's the uh, oh the Aeneid Aeneas is like a culture hero, right? The idea that these and Lord of the Flies is again building a new culture right. uh, in a sort of small sense but like here you're taking these these rabbits establishing a new warren and and investing it with the same sort of epic attention to detail and investment of the emotions and the sentimentality that you would aeneid going off and founding rome you know uh mm-hmm. that i there i i was trying to think of the thing like why it was both annoying and impressive to me and you know, because I, I well, definitely I wanted to a... tap out after about 200 pages. I was like, nope, yes. I do not need to. Because I, I thought I had read this book in college, but I think I might have just cheated. Because I because I got about 200 pages. Oh, you're about, I do not You're about to get some hate mail from Amy. Yeah. Goddamn so, idiot, you cheated. I'm glad, but I'm glad I stuck with it. Because by, you know, 300, 400 pages in, I, I did get, get into it. And and the, 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 the comparison that I kept thinking about is like walking along like a beach. And when somebody has made like... A sandcastle that is so incredibly detailed and impressive. It's like, you know, or like a doll's house. <laughs> like it's like somebody taking it to an extreme. You know, like I'm gonna, I'm gonna build like the greatest hobby train set ever, and it's mm-hmm. gonna take over the entire. It's like there's something impressive about that. There's something a little strange and a little like a little obsessive. Uh, like, a little obsessive but you respect but I, it. But you respect it. It demands its own respect and like. You know, short of the chauvinism in the book, I, 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 I do have a lot of respect for the for the exercise, and I do think, like, like uh, you were saying, Todd, for a kid, uh, like my son already at five is obsessed with like scale and hmm. thinking of mm-hmm. you know like thinking of things that are small, and like a lot of our games we play, we shrink and we go on adventures and we look at things from a different perspective, or we imagine the way animals see the world, or you know how you know, and I think that this book does that for a kid. Um, it, you know, for like you're saying, an 11 year old boy, most likely, it really creates a, a microcosm that that is exciting and interesting and engaging. Um, so I, I think that's awesome. I think part of the problem with with the length now is that cartoons do this work now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, your average Saturday morning cartoon does that sort of like a like a changing of scale or investing in a world there's comic books that do this like when this was first written i imagine the very like the notion of children's literature was just sort of being established um as as much of a um, like a marketplace as it is now and there just weren't that many options so the idea of like 
taking this much time and like, you know, making a kid read this long to get what is kind of not very much. Uh, I just, it seems a little outdated. Uh, the same way that I think like Tolkien is kind of outdated. You know, like I never got through any of the Tolkien books. They're too long and boring and they're not about anything to me. But I think to your average 11 year old in the 60s and 70s, that was incredible. Now, I don't know if Tolkien holds up as well as, because there's so many other fantasy books that are better written, that have better plots, that do the same sort of thing, but um, they don't require so much investment. Or maybe they do. I, I don't know. But I think the other thing, too, is that maybe a kid um, goes and binges the, the Netflix adaptation of this and watches right. it over eight hours right. and gets the whole story versus sitting down to read it. Because I think also what... Um, what the story sort of lacks is an actual tangible motivation. So Fiverr has a vision. Right. I mean, it's an accurate vision that oh, they're gonna they're gonna you know build houses here. <laughs> I mean, it's also a story about gentrification on top of everything else. <laughs> um, so you know, Fiverr realizes bad shit's coming because there's men with shovels showing up. Um, but it's not an like to to go on an epic quest because. The one weird dude in the neighborhood is like, it's bad here. It's going to be really bad. Grab all our friends. Let's go. I have a vision of a shining mountain on a hill. Um, like, that's that's not even... I was just talking about this on my Facebook page, actually. That's not even like the hero's journey, right? Um, it's just like, we should go. Okay. That shit's coming. Well, but yeah. it kind of is. I mean, that's like Aeneid is just run out of Troy. You know, like, yeah, that, but he's just They're not even out. run out. He just decides we need to go. So I think right. what the driving force in this book is, and this is what is accurate, is fear. It's not mm -hmm. desire right. or planning or, I don't know, any kind of relationship-based thing. Like, the most interesting part of this book is all the different giant perspective things that are killing these rabbits so poison gas cats oh that was creepy as hell oh my god yeah other rabbits you know you do get a sense of threat you know 360 degree constant threat um and that's what i think is cool about this book and to get to your point Ryder, you know it is a very brutal book i don't know what would make this book for kids except that it's rabbits <laughs> you yeah. know i mean it is very dark it's almost non-stop upsetting um and i think well, that's, maybe I that's why it's so popular kid. yeah mm -hmm. i think it's i think that's really powerful because as yeah. a kid i watched the cartoon obsessively i mean i didn't have access to many movies as a kid but for whatever reason we had a vhs of the watership down movie and you know rewatching it again this morning i was blown away how under my skin it is uh because it is it is violent and there's blood and there's like a lot frothing, of blood. frothing really at the mouth um they also do a really good job of creating these psychedelic uh interpretations uh of the uh, el hara el hara i'm not gonna say it correctly he says at one point, the, never the bunny say God. God. Just call it the bunny God. All right, hi. Yeah, anyway, the bunny God. You know, he tells those sort they they, they, they they visually represent those mythic stories really cool and interestingly. Um, uh, and and uh, all set to a uh, Art Garfunkel song called Bright Eyes. <laughs> Super sentimental, too. But it gets it, you know, it ends with Hazel's death the same way that this book does. Really sad. Like this, this sort of, you know, epic story 
I don't know. There's just death around every corner, yeah. mm-hmm. and it got under my skin as a kid. And I, I it really, I, it's always stuck with me. Um, and rereading the book, I got into that. I mean, by the end, that last hundred pages, it's, it's, it's a Vietnam War novel, right? Well, like it's, so, it becomes the matter. It becomes Matterhorn. They're just yeah, fighting so over Watership Down. And it's like, oh, anybody could die at any moment. And it's like we, uh, you know, and the fact that Hazel makes that overture, and like is this sort of ethical hero is really to me it was really touching and well earned i was like all right and then they're still gonna have to fight and right. they might die but you know what you stand up for what's right i was totally on board by that point so to go to go back to your war analogy and i i think this is all intentional um i think you're right about the the ending as being a parable to vietnam but the the gassing of the bunnies oh, yeah. underground like this is it's literally exactly mm-hmm. what the nazis did to the jews in the warsaw ghettos yep. after the after the uprising so in 1942 a small band of jews in the warsaw ghetto rose up against the nazis in in town and then they basically had to hide underground from the nazis they had you know tunnels in the sewers and shit and what the nazis did is they covered up the sewers so they couldn't escape and sent poison gas underground and killed all the Jews. And then the ones that were able to escape, the ones that popped out were the ones that basically told the story. Um, and there's this, you know, there's, there's this, um, this idea that like, oh, maybe they let a couple run off to tell the story, mm-hmm. you know, like, hey, this is what's going to happen to you if you don't do what we tell you to do. Um, there's some, I have a book all about it, right? There, um, I, I think Adams would would resist any direct parallels to historical events. Do you know what I mean? Like, I I feel like, and I I think that that's that's actually a really a, a strength of the book because if you think about it, like really heavy handed allegories. Um, I think Animal Farm is an exception because it's just it's so abstract. It's just about how people take power. Like you can't say it's it parallels one specific regime or one one specific war. It's it's just sort of this universal allegory. But like this book is aiming for something really kind of broad and ethical in and ecological. Uh, because like my favorite part was when they actually create the word. I'm assuming they create animality. As, as opposed to humanity, mm-hmm. there's an animality that they cherish at, that is recognizing other animals in need, recognizing that different species might also work with you, not against you. And humanity in this book is villainous in their pursuit of development and ecological destruction, right? Like they just want to use things. Everybody's smoking, which I took me for a while to figure Your out white why. Fire like, the white fire sticks. white fire sticks. I was literally like on 350. I was like, oh, it's a cigarette. I'm like carrying torches or something. But like humans are disgusting, right? They smell bad. They, they, they're poisoning things. They're ruining nature. Um, and that's a very powerful message that, that the book carries through to, I love the fact that the, the, the deus ex machina, you know, the god machine that comes down and saves the day is a human. Um, and it's a, it's a little girl who loves the rabbits and, mm-hmm. and, and saves Hazel at the end there. That is such an interesting, to me, that was a really, really brilliant twist to, to, ele- to, to, to elevate us as humans. You know, the whole book, you've been sort of hating humanity to then sort of put the pressure on this little girl and her willingness to help an animal, her animality basically is what saves the story. And what, what like 
I just thought that was really cool, that she sort of functions as a god machine in a traditional storytelling structure when it's really just her willingness to to love an animal and to 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 see it as you know worthy of her worthy of not suffering. Um, like that's a really broadly ethical message that's beautiful and, and that's it's run throughout this entire book. Yeah, and that's where it is for his daughters. You know, I mean, yeah. there's a lot. There's oh man, you could write a million theses on little girls as animal lovers in children's and YA literature. I mean, this is Charlotte's mm. Web. It's so yeah. many books. And we're sort of asking the children, as always, to be better than, <laughs> than the rest of us. Right. Um, and I think you're totally right, Ryder, like that that's the big takeaway from this book, as with all good 60s, 70s, and 80s media. You know? <laughs> no impact. They're, they're, no impact, but a good try, Fern Gully. <laughs> There came a point, though. Couldn't there, do any there, good, but we, we tried. There, there came a point early on when I almost stopped reading. Do you guys know when it was? No. I'm going to tell you. Um, do you guys have this version of the book? I'm just holding up no. my book to my friends here. No. Well, it's uh, chapter 16. Okay. Uh, page 2 of chapter 16. Middle of the page. Have you guys got there? It's about page one. It's page 100 in my book. Oh, is it when the, the poem started? No, no, no. That was another part at which I Okay, I'm ready. El Hara, oh. however you pronounce it, is a trickster. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so I want to. And you tell me that, that Adams isn't trying to put allegory in here? You put the fucking trickster myth into this so okay to i'm saying he's not making clear allegories like he, okay. his he's trying to reach for a sort of really broad struggle that yeah you can see native american inspiration in a lot of the stories and the trickster stuff that he's bringing in you could you know all sorts of uh colonial moments and historical parallels but i don't think he's making just like lord of the rings is very hard to pin down as like a world war one or world war two uh, epic, you know, like he, and, and Tolkien resisted that. Like most of these really good fantasy writers didn't don't want it to be a one to one parallel to a specific right. historical. And it event. shouldn't they be. They want it to be broader. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. So it has echoes. Yeah. So I I really want to jump in here because I there's something I've been saving up <laughs> to communicate about a stopping point for me in the book too. Um, but before I say what it is, um, yeah, I think Todd is right in that. Look, we have to understand that even when people think they're writing something that's like completely disconnected from history, you know, we're all a part of history. This guy right. lived through World War II. He knows at Probably least some fought, aspect. Yeah, he fought in it. He served in the Second World War. Okay, so go. he can be like, this isn't about that. This is about the bunnies in my yard. But we're all affected by that. But it is not yeah. the job of the book to get us to remember World War II. It's to take whatever jumps out to us and bring it into the current moment that is useful and inspiring to us in whatever way we can. So right. here is where I stopped. Okay, so pause for a second. It is November, no, it's September 22nd today. Very dark political week. Ruth Bader Ginsburg Ugh. just died. We are all just fucking sucks. waiting to Terrible. see what happens people around me are writing postcards and emailing and calling like crazy which 
I respect, but it all feels very helpless. And here I am reading Watership Down, and I'm like, this is what I'm going to – I'm going to do this, I promise. I'm going to write this on a postcard and send it to Mitt Romney. Here's here's what it will be. <laughs> Frith sees you. You're not <laughs> – you're not fit to be called a rabbit. May Frith yes. blast your foul Ausla full of bullies. Yes. yes. And first, yeah, I love that moment. Yeah. And Frith sees you. <laughs> first, I was like, I should send that to Mitch McConnell. I was like, but you know what? Just something in my bones tells me that Watership Down is Mitt Romney's favorite book. I just know it. In my heart. Yes. Like, this has that... You're probably right. Like, yeah, has Mormon surprised. righteousness. Yes, and it's, yes. like, cutesy, just the right amount of <laughs> yeah. cutesy, but intelligent. And it's just, just deep enough as to be like, oh, wow, like, yeah, it's like the little prince in Watership Down. Yeah, I get it, yeah. Season. And I just feel like it would be the perfect thing to really creep somebody out. <laughs> You know? I, by the way, I would wear a T-shirt that says Fritz sees you on it. <laughs> That's awesome. I think oh, another one of the major things that, that, that I kept, that it seems, you know, the recurring themes of this book are the way that your culture limits your ability to think. Mm, um, yes, great one. It's yeah, really good point. at sort of illustrating that with, via these rabbits. You know, like the fact that those, that cult that they meet, you know, they just, they, they, our, our characters cannot engage with them and they can't figure out what is wrong. And then it turns out it's because they're sacrificing themselves. You know, they're getting caught in snares and they're just letting mm. themselves be sacrificed because it allows them to be, you know, fattened up and fed and, and live a sort of peaceful life. But they have to, they have to uh, live in denial. So they have to have this right. like fog over. But then they're also more civilized and more proper. They don't care about trickster stories because they, they now just recite poems where it's just like, take me away with the wind. And like, basically like they're, they're a death cult, you know, they're just this like, and that, you know, and then the same thing happens when you get to the next, um, when you get to the, 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 the does at the farm. Mm-hmm. You know, they cannot conceive of the being wild the rabbits. And they yeah. can't, yeah, and so it takes a while for them to try and, like, convince, and, and then all throughout our, you know, our main characters, Hazel and his, his tribe, what really sets them apart is their willingness to expand their brains, right? Their willingness to look at their culture as not the be-all, end-all, finished culture, but a culture that needs to keep being revised and engaged with other cultures. And it needs to keep growing. And that is really... That's like the most powerful takeaway, I think, is yeah, that like yeah. nobody yeah. is nobody is absolutely right. Like Hazel is not saying I have all the answers. He's constantly saying, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. And he's constantly turning to Bigwig and Bigwig is saying, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. And that is like a real heroic epic. Those are the best heroic epics where the hero, it, it's it's a painful position of having to sacrifice yourself to pretend that you know what you're doing in order to be a leader and to inspire other people to use their skill sets to do what they can bring to the table and that as a plurality as a diversity you bring strength like that is a beautiful message and this book drives that home it's like if we think that that our culture our storytelling is done and or or like our way of you know engaging with our myths and our legends is like over and doesn't need to be retold or re-engage with the the next civilization we meet or the next group of you know like that is death and that is stagnant and that leads to police state and like really you could kind of see the development of woundworth's police state pretty you know it's like well yeah you're, well, the, you're doing so the right the thing, thing to survive with but your there's a fascinating thing in the police state bit too where um 
I don't remember which character says this to the other one, but it's I think it's the the doe that comes from the police state says, you know, oh, well, something doesn't happen after we're told it's going to happen. We just forget that they said it was going to happen. Right. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, my God, that's like three days ago on MSNBC. Yes, exactly. (laughs) You know, exactly. and and then there was another bit. Uh, Bigwig at some point says those are just long grass rumors, and I was like, oh, like even even in this culture, there's like this. There's the um, the disinformation, and then there's also the pipe dreams that you want to be true, and then the one person who can say, oh, those, that's just that's just like living in the long grass, <laughs> you yeah. know. Yeah. But you're um, right, Ryder. I hadn't thought of it this way, but. Um... You know, they do end up rescuing or collaborating with one rabbit from every one of those scenarios and including them in. And then, of course, there's the classic help a little mouse out and he's going to save your ass later. (laughs) And then the bird, the goal. You know, it's all about it's all about stretching your existing culture and being like, okay, we don't have all the answers. We might need this help later on down the line. So we're going to welcome this person in or help this other animal or these other rabbits and and that will pay back in dividends and it it works you know Mm -hmm. and and it works in a way that doesn't i don't know i mean that's what i that's what i think it makes this book really special is that it speaks that speaks to truth to me you know that that if you're if your authority comes from fascistic strength right like if your authority comes from violence you're doomed to fail because you're just going to have to keep perpetuating violence in order to maintain your authority. Uh, if your authority comes from denial, from a godlike, you know, belief that the man who feeds you is also able to take whatever, you know, you're good. You're doomed to just live in this fog where you're going to get killed eventually in a snare. And I think that like what our what makes our band of rabbits heroic is their 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 specific like openness to cultural experience and 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 they're and they're always telling stories they're always retelling stories they're adapting their stories to their current circumstances and like that's what you know the first el harara rel ray like couple stories i was like really do i have to read every single one of these but then i really came to look forward to them because you could see these parallels to the situations that they were in and of course their their ability to 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 change and to change themselves change their bodies you know it's all reflected in those stories um uh, yeah, I, this book totally won me over by the end. It is long though. Well, but it's hold on a minute. I, I I get that you you are an emotional puddle about this book. But yes. Can we talk briefly about the dialogue of the bird? <laughs> Big water. I I draw your attention to page. Yes, yeah, it's, it's like pigeon seven. If anything, it's 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 more German than than anything, right? It has like this uh, weird. Well, I, I really Nordic. sort of tur- turn out the German. Um, <laughs> this is page two fifty seven. Um, return and departure. That the the bird's about to leave for a while. Ya ya, help you forget mutters, but now east dees, Mister Ozel. Always vant pig vader now. Always, always east hearing pig vader. Vant to fly to pig vader. Now soon you go for get mutters. I hope you how you liked and then you getting mutters. I leave you there. Fly away. No come back. But I come back another time. Yeah. I mean, if this is how it sounds in your head. Yes, I agree. (laughs) That's horrible. (laughs) In winter, I come live here with you. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, I have a hard time with, like, phonetic 
I hate it. Writing in books in general. <laughs> in general. And it's one of those things, like, you know, we probably talked about it when we did Huck Finn. It's like, ugh. But in this case, it's a made-up animal <laughs> language, right? So it's not like... I mean, there's definitely... I mean, there's some deep colonialism going into yes, this book. Like, there's that moment when he's like... That's um, the you know, when he's paralleling, for. when he talks about them seeing, what do they, they see a bridge for the first time and they don't know what it is. And he's like, it's like an African who sees a, you know, a car. Yeah. It doesn't mean anything because they're just so benighted. They, they couldn't possibly understand it. Uh, so it doesn't actually have the effect that, you know, it's, so there's, there's definitely, and then of course there's, touch that. Yeah. yeah, there's, but I, I, I do like the, as far as addressing the challenge of understanding how animals might be able to, com- like the, the imaginative challenge of animals communicating with each other. It goes mm-hmm. back to like, you know, White Fang when you're inside the head of a dog. It's just, right. it's a tough literary choice that they've made. And, <laughs> I, you know, you either love it or you hate it. I didn't love it either, but I, it, it, it was fine. Well, like, I, I like the idea it's not, of big, it's not just being in the head of, of a bunny because you also get Fiverr's dream. Mm. So, <laughs> I mean, it, like it's every suspension of disbelief that I have a hard time with as a reader is you know i hate reading dream sequences i hate reading another story told by another person <laughs> in dialogue for 15 pages at a time i hate embedded songs and poems in books um and this book had all of those <laughs> did you guys actually read word for word every el hahar yes no. That was yes. I, I knew. <laughs> I knew Ryder did, and I knew Julie <laughs> didn't. They're so good. It's the exact so same good. thing as the insane songs in Lord of the Rings. I'm yeah, like, I could come back to geekery. this. It's geekery. Um, yeah, it's when, full on like yeah, granular level geekery. But I, I kind of love it. I mean, I appreciate that you love it. I want you to love it. I feel bad skipping it, but I'm also old enough and have already read this. This is a benefit of a second read. I'm like, I already read this. <laughs> Right. <laughs> I figured that if it was important, it would show itself in the in the uptext of the book and not the subtext of someone telling the story again. But then when I got to the end and Hazel walks with Jesus or walks with God or the Holy Ghost, he does something. Um, I then felt maybe I should know these myths a little bit better <laughs> <laughs> and did go back. I mean, the ending is very powerful. I'm, I, I'm you know, for all of the shit talking I'm doing. If I were reading this at 11 years old, I suspect I would be sobbing at the end mm-hmm. of yeah. this book. I mean, because it also does a really nice job, I think, for a young person of um, of talking about spirituality in a, lo- in a non-God way. Yeah, yeah. And talking about the passage of death and, yeah. and what it might mean to have your energy persist in a non-Christian yeah. you know sort of Christian way. And I, I also thought that it would probably be helpful for a child losing a pet. You know, like losing their dog or their cat. Yeah. Um, that reading that might give them some sort of, you know, like the rainbow bridge, you know, but in a, in a different way of, of looking at things. But it is extraordinarily emotional at the end. And, you know, Adams is a good writer. We like Yeah, he's a great writer. N- nothing that I'm saying is about the writing itself. Like, he's a, he's a really good writer. Um, and the dialogue, each character sounds completely different than the, the other characters, mm-hmm. which is hard when you're writing from the point of view of something that's later going to be a stew. Um, and so <laughs> I found that particularly engaging. Um, yeah, but- there's there's there, there's also something really cool that he does, which is like, um, you know, it's a, there's a lot of landscape description, which mm-hmm. yeah. at first was kind of annoying. 
But then I really got into it. Um, in particular, I'm thinking of this one passage where it just describes the moonlight. And I think it's on the actual down. Maybe. I bookmarked this too, I think. It is so beautiful because what he's doing is he's trying to get us out of our human perception. Uh, and he, you know, it's, it's one of those things that only a book can do where he's, he's, he's describing moonlight and how it's different than daylight and how we basically can't see it the way that rabbits see it. Yeah, I have and it. I it's bookmarked beautiful. It. Yeah. yeah. Um, this is the only thing I bookmark, Ryder. We're completely in wow. sync. Okay. Yeah. Uh, here we go. <laughs> I got all kinds of them. <laughs> Um, let's see. It's long. All right. It's really we, long. We take, to... we take daylight for granted, but moonlight is another matter. It is inconstant. The full moon wanes and returns again. Clouds may obscure it to an extent to which they cannot obscure daylight. Water is necessary to us, but a waterfall is not. Where it is to be found is something extra, a beautiful ornament. We need daylight, and to that extent it is utilitarian, but moonlight we do not need. When it comes, it serves no necessity. It transforms. It falls upon the banks in the grass, separating one long blade from another, turning a drift of brown frosted leaves from a single heap to innumerable flashing fragments or glimmering lengthways along wet twigs as though light itself were ductile. Its long beams pour, white and sharp, between the trunks of trees, their clarity fading as they recede into the powdery, mystery distance of beech woods at night. In moonlight, two acres of coarse-bent grass, undulant and ankle-deep, tumbled and rough as a horse's mane, appear like a bay of waves, all shadowy troughs and hollows. And I'll I'll stop there, but it goes on to transform this into how, of course, essential moonlight is for animals that eat at night. Yeah. yeah, it's really good. I mean, that kind of that kind of thinking. I don't know. Like, that's just, you know, that's that's good literature. It's really yeah. well yeah. written. He does a he does a similar thing in much shorter uh, way at towards the end when he just says something in one line that I really loved, which is about winter. He says, oh, "Many yeah. human beings say that they enjoy the winter, but what they really enjoy is feeling proof against it." Mm. I love that passage. Yeah, and I was like, "Oh my god, that's true." It's like it's sitting by the fire mm. under right. a blanket, right? And then he explicitly says, uh, "Poor people don't feel right. that way." He's like, "You know, but for animals and poor people, it's not that. You know, winter is just a nightmare." And that I yeah. thought that was, you know, yeah, yeah. Winter cannot hurt them, and therefore increases their sense of cleverness and security. Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's important. It's a beautiful line. I think it's important to remember how like weird this book must have seemed when it first came out. Um, it seems weird now. <laughs> it does and it doesn't because well, like you know, we we um, like the idea of writing an entire book about talking animals. Like, I f- there must be a lot of YA books in that category, right? Like, it doesn't seem. Uh, I just think that you know, writing something for children that's focused on a group of animals on an adventure now kind of seems like a cliche. But back then, writing something for children that's on an adventure that is so well written and so um, sort of, uh, you know, like, this would be a challenge. Like I, I'm excited to see at what age, if and when, my son will discover this book because like I don't want to read this to him now. It would be so boring for him. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, there are other books, like the, the chapter books I'm reading to him now are much the sort of more predictable, the Harry Potter, the, you know, he can keep up with those plots. But this, like, this is something can, I think you discover on your own when you're like, probably over nine or 10. You could show and, him the cartoon, like when he's seven, though, could yeah. you? Is it too violent at seven? No, no, no. I think the brutality is the point. I think, I think, you know, this is, I think part of the reason that we don't have books like this being written anymore is because of the 
the overall Disneyfication of our our, our, right. our storytelling to kids like you know like that that the reason that that movie is sort of a cult classic i mean it's on, it's in the criterion collection that's how i accessed it online right now it's you know it's, it's otherwise it's very hard to find and kind of obscure uh as opposed to like disney films from the era because it's the anti-bambi right like bambi right. is like let's make these animals look as cute as possible and be as human appealing to humans as possible and talk about love and relation you know and so yeah bambi's mom dies like that's an act of brutality but like watching this watership down cartoon even the way that they animate uh the the animals talking to each other they're sniffing each other while mm -hmm. they're talking, they bounce around. They move like animals. No Disney cartoon has ever done that. You know, they are, they're up on two legs mm -hmm. and they got the big, you know, cutesy eyes and perfect cheeks. Like, the, like the whole project of Watership Down was to not make nature cute or to make it appealing to humans. Instead, it was to sort of add a, a human cultural element into existing animal uh, behavior. And like the, car the original cartoon really is good at that. Um, and I, I think that that's why it got under my skin is because I remember feeling really sad and really like, like when I started hearing the score this morning, when the movie, it like immediately made me want to cry. And that means that like I was mm. bawling as a six or seven year old, probably because of, of this cartoon in a way that like Disney stuff, like, yeah, I remember the stories and I remember being excited and laughing and like the adventures, but I, they don't get under my skin in a like, oh, this is like getting close to real life and I should think about this more. So, Ryder, I think Todd's maybe a little out of our age range, but um, you might fall into this. I have long oh, believed that you. there have been, <laughs> in my, <laughs> I'm an 80s, 80s child, like there are basically two kinds of kids and they're all inside us. There's the Disney kids and then there's the fucking Don Bluth kids. You know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. Land Before exactly. Time, Secret of Nim. American Tale, uh, Secret of Nim, yes. All Dogs Go to Heaven. And all of those movies straight up are sad. Just sad. That's the point. It's like make kids as sad as possible. Yes. <laughs> and I am very proud to have watched Land Before Time. You know, hundreds of times, hundreds of times. No, and that was a yeah, big moment. See, you know, like Land Before Time, I was already like sixteen. <laughs> I I didn't realize that all of those were connected until relatively recently, and I, I looked up the history of Bluth leaving Disney and you know starting his own studio, and there was that was when Disney was floundering a bit because they mm -hmm. lost all their animators to Bluth, um, and it's interesting. Like the the there were different philosophies, different approaches, but it's hard because Disney's like even watching this Watership Down, it's cheap. You can yeah. tell they didn't have the money that Disney had behind him. And that is ultimately what makes Disney triumph is that the artwork itself is incredible. The filmmaking, like you go back and watch Bambi, it is a masterpiece of filmmaking. It is so beautiful. And that just back then took so much money to, to marshal the resources and the technology to be able to do those things. And like you watch this this Watership Down, they didn't have it. You watch Secret of Nim, they didn't have those resources. So the animation feels cheap. The backgrounds don't really, you know, you can always tell which characters are gonna move mm -hmm. because the backgrounds are mm -hmm. so static and the, the foreground characters are so cheaply drawn. They just did not have the lenses to even photograph the, 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 the cells the same way. So like, there's no focus racks. There's, no, there's none of the stuff that make Disney what Disney is just as a filmmaking. But unfortunately, I think we've lost the storytelling options you know because now we only have the disney like that's it we only have disney like there's no well, other no, company Param making Paramount's imaginative making, children's making stuff animated stuff aren't they 
I guess, but you're not hand-drawn, right? Like, no one's doing right. hand-drawn anymore. But I think that everybody's imitating the Disney three-act story structure storytelling model. Like, nobody... Right. They, that, it just, it just makes too much money. It's too effective. It works for kids. And it's also the Disney... You know, the fundamental Disney approach has always been offend the least amount of people. <laughs> that, you know, that's their goal. It's like, how do you make something that most amount of parents will allow their children to watch and then buy the most amount of products as a result of? Pixar, but, Pixar but is slightly Pixar's different. different right? Pixar's, Pixar's yeah, different. Pixar has their story development team. They do their own thing. That clearly has been working. But still, you look at Cars franchise. What is that? Mm. Well, it's and I'll just say, bullshit. I've watched Frozen 2 and Trolls 2 many times. <laughs> probably 50 <laughs> times each. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I like them both. I like them yeah. both. But it didn't take me long to be like, these are the exact same movie. Yeah, because right. this yeah. is the exact, and I'm not talking in a general way. They are, they have the same, uh, okay, I'm going to just go deep here for a second. Like yeah. the male lead of both is trying to propose to the female lead and they're both about like reparations essentially and and white privilege and like chilling out on white privilege that's what they're both about um and they've been they're so they're trying to be socially relevant they are socially relevant but they've packaged it to your point Ryder in a way that's the perfect it's like the only possible way to tell this one story to a mass amount of families so they're the same I encourage people to go deep on my conspiracy theory here uh, just a little known fact here. I, I just I was trying to remember why I knew more about Land Before Time than I should know because it came out when I was 17. And I realized that my friend Stu Krieger wrote it. <gasps> Great job, Stu. You really hurt me as a child. Yeah, I'm going to tell him. He, uh, he He's my colleague at UC Riverside. Wow. Uh, he, yes, he's good friends, uh, writer with our mutual good friend, Joshua Malkin. He wrote Land Before Time. He fucked up Julia Pistel. And my whole family. <laughs> They've done a whole series of Land Before Time movies. I think they get progressively worse. Yeah, but and the, then they the made first a, one a TV is, series, too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I remember the first one being very emotional, too. Yeah, and then Fern Gully was another Oh, another Fern one Gully of was very upsetting. I yeah. did see Fern Gully. And then I saw Avatar. Avatar, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Same movie. <laughs> God, and I'm not going to see the 13 Avatar movies that came out. I promise. I'm not going to do it. At least not in the theater, because I don't go to the theater anymore. Wow. Well, we love talking animals. That's what I've learned here. <laughs> I hate talking animals in books. I find them charming on the screen. Like, um, you know, those superhero talking animals? Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy? Paw Patrol? Love that little, yeah. Love all the little <laughs> talking aardvarks and shit. I love that. Arthur? Literary Disco is produced and edited by Justin Alvarez for Lit Hub Radio. You can reach out to us directly on Twitter at literary, literary, at literary Disco, and we promise to protect you from Todd. Happy reading, everybody. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>